Um, fortunately, I'm doing both communion and the message, so you have to put up with me twice. But um, I remember, I must have been about 17, 18, I think, um, I went up to the pastor of our church and I said, I'd like to pray that the Lord would, because we sang the song, Purify My Heart. We sang it. Everybody in the congregation sang it. And I just went up to the pastor and I said, um, I'd like to pray that. And um, he said, do you understand what you're praying for? Which I kind of, when I look back, sounds a bit ironic because we all sang it. <laughs> so it's like if we're singing it but we don't want to pray it, it sounds like why we're singing it. But I, I'm, I'm thinking about that and, you know, sometimes that mindset of, you know, do we really understand this and should we really sing it, is actually maybe not a good way to look at it because um, you read about the man who built his house on the rock and the man who built his house on the sand. The same storm came against both. And Peter says, um, don't be, um, don't think it's strange that the fiery trial comes upon you. And really that prayer, purify my heart, is Sometimes it's a case of understanding, Lord, don't let the trials that will come across my way go to waste, because they'll come, whether we pray that prayer or not. But the Lord, by yielding to him, the Lord will bring about um, amazing, an amazing purpose through us, because I think of Peter, and that's what's on my heart, and we sang it today, we sang um, about... Um, all to Jesus I surrender, and we sang about um, being faithful to the Lord, and for as long as I live, I'll always sing. And um, Peter was one of those people that thought they would, you know. He and and he's my one of my favorite apostles because um, you know he often gets you hear preachers talk about him as if you know, well, Peter, he goes like this, and then suddenly he does 180 and goes the other extreme, and you know, but. I, I look at Peter, and especially when he denied the Lord three times, and um, this really challenges me because I'm not like Peter. Um, when Jesus was on the edge of the Sea of Galilee when they went fishing, and um, Jesus calls out and says, have you catched any fish? And they hadn't caught anything. And um, he tells them, just like he said at the beginning, cast your net on the other side or on the right side. And um, John recognizes it is the Lord. He tells Peter, and I find it amazing, Peter was the first one to put his coat on and dive in the water and go back to the Lord. Having failed him like that, he was the first one to face up to it. You know, and sometimes we look at our failings and we hide. But Peter wasn't like that. He loved his Lord. And, um, and the amazing thing about the Lord, and this is what I want to pull into, I want us to contemplate as we take communion, is the Lord asks him three times, do you love me? And Peter is cut to the heart that he asked him three times, because it was three times that he denied the Lord. And, um, you know, the love that Jesus asked him about, I think must have spoken to Peter about the way he thought he loved the Lord, that he'd be willing to lay his life down for the Lord. And, um, and he says, Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. You know, you know I really do love you, even if not, not in that way that I thought I did. And the Lord makes a promise to him in verse 18 of John 21. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you are grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this, he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And in, in church history, I think it's Eusebius, and who wrote it, that he, he was crucified upside down on his own request because he didn't feel worthy to be crucified the same way as his Lord did because of his denial of the Lord. And, you know, the amazing thing is Peter couldn't love the Lord that way. He, he didn't have it in him. But the Lord says, 
Just keep doing what I tell you to do and I will bring you to that place that you can. And um, I love that scripture in 1 John. It says, you know, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, but he doesn't stop there. Because forgiveness is not, like, coming to the Lord is not just simply about being acquitted so we don't have to be punished eternally for our sin, but it says, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness, that God wipes the slate clean and he makes us new and he, he gives us new life. And so at the heart of communion for me this morning is not just the death of Christ and the resurrection, but all of that which was accomplished through that sacrifice, that because of the cross and because of the resurrection, we, we have the Holy Spirit who has made us alive in Christ and given us a new life, not just a new start, but a new life completely. Um, and that life, the Lord um, is able to, um, he will grow it. It's like a seed. He will grow it as we yield to him and as we um, follow him. He will accomplish those purposes. So we can pray, um, I will always praise you for as long as I live. Not because of what's in us, in terms of what's innate to us, like who I am, but of, because of Christ and the Holy Spirit in me that um, will enable me to do that which he calls me to do. So as we take communion this morning, um, let's just do it in gratefulness because the Lord's promises are yes and amen. And we can't have confidence in ourselves, but we can have 100% confidence in him. Um, so could I, could I ask um, people to give out communion? If you know the Lord and you're giving your life to the Lord and you are born again, you're welcome to partake with us. Could I ask somebody else? Thank you. But that wants to partake? Dear Father, thank you so much that because of what you did in sending your son, to take our just punishment on him so that we can be acquitted without you um, being corrupt. Lord, that you can be both just and the justifier of us who believe in you. I thank you on the basis of that, that you will accomplish your purposes for us in our lives and for the lives of those around us as, they, as people yield to you. So Lord, as we partake of this, help us to commit to you again, Lord, to yield to your spirit, to be in your word, and for you to do your wonderful purposes in every situation, Lord, in the, the, the nice times and the not-so-nice times, we pray. In Jesus' name, our Lord and Savior. Amen. I don't, do we have um, our children? Nope. Okay, cool. All right, so we're going to be looking at John chapter 5. John chapter Dear Father, I thank you for the power of the truth of your word, Lord, that you are true and you have given us the spirit of truth and you've given us the word of truth. Lord, that this is not just an ordinary human book, but this is put together by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So Lord, um, we ask you this morning, please speak to us. For Lord, except you speak, there will be no life because life can only come from you. And we pray, Lord, you give us the ears to hear, the hearts to receive, and the minds to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, John is one of my favorite, it is my favorite gospel in the New Testament, probably still is my new, 
my favorite gospel because um, it used to be really my favorite gospel before I read more of scripture and started to see things. But John is so full of um, layers of meaning and it's um, such a deep book. And um, I like the name John because it really testifies to the theology of this book, which his name means Jehovah is gracious. And as we'll see, that's exactly what the Lord came to do, to um, really manifest truth and grace to um, the people of Israel, that they might believe that he is the Messiah. And through not only them, but also together people from outside that fold to bring them into one body, as he says in, I think it's chapter 10. But this sign of Bethesda has been picked by John on purpose. Um, if you turn to quickly John chapter 20, or you can listen, verses 30 and 31, John explains why he handpicked these signs, these miraculous signs. He says, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. As you read through John, the word belief, you come to see it takes on a, a more, it's not just coming to Jesus and say, I believe you, but it's an ongoing belief. There's three times, especially in my mind, where John highlights this. One, when he fed the 5,000 and he gave them a difficult teaching, and it says his disciples withdrew and turned away. There's another place where the Lord says to the people who believed on him, if you abide in my teaching, you really are my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And they got offended because he insinuated that they were slaves, and they withdrew. And then the Lord in, um, where he, in John 15, and he says, every branch that does not um, abide in me is, um, doesn't bear fruit, and it's cut off as a branch, and they gather them. And so belief for John is not just believing once upon a time, it is believing and continually believing. And, um, and the belief is not simply to, like, Save me, Jesus. It's an understanding of who he is, some kind of understanding of who he is. These signs are not just displays of power. These signs carry significance. That's why they're called signs. They point to something. And so when we read these, about these miraculous events in John, we should always ask, even if we don't get the answers and the Lord doesn't reveal to us at that time, we should ask ourselves, what is the significance of the sign? Not just that Jesus can heal people, but what was he trying to say? Can we turn to John chapter 1? And I'm going to read verses 17 and 18 because this really does lay a foundation for what John's trying to communicate in his gospel. Um, and it says... For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. And that word explained is often used to speak about the way people interpret the Bible, meaning taking what's in here and unpacking it out. And that's what Jesus does to us with the Father. He unpacks the Father to us that we can understand and know him. But we can only know the Father through the Son. And um, this shows the supremacy of Jesus to Moses. And what Jesus does is superior to what the law could do. The law was good, it was righteous, and it was um, a gift to Israel. But I don't like it when kind of hear that sentiment, oh, I'm glad I'm not under those rules, because it's almost like a, a judgment on God, because those rules and those laws express the character of God. I'm thankful that I am in grace, 
the problem with the law is not because the law was bad. The problem with the, with the law is it didn't change us. There is no problem with the law. The problem is with us. We are fundamentally flawed, and therefore it takes something greater than the law to bring about that righteousness, which is the work of Christ through his Spirit. And that's another theme that's in John. So let's turn to John 5. And um, I'll firstly read from verses 1 to 17. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Hebrew is called Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in, was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he'd already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, Do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day, so the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, It is the Sabbath, and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. And they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while the, there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you've become well. Do not sin any more, so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, my father is working until now, and I myself am working, and I want to continue with verse 18. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So let's just list some of the, some of the aspects of this miracle, this sign. Firstly, the place is called Bethesda. There are five porticos, covered walkways. Probably the sick lay in these. There was water, which was standing water, not a river. There was an angel who would stir up the water. First one in gets healed. Which is not the main point of this passage, because if you notice, you don't read of anybody getting healed. Right? That's not the main point. The main point, I'll just put this lesser point, the main point is the man who'd been lame for 38 years in that condition, and he is helpless. He can't get healed. He's tried, probably given up. Then, you have the fact that on the Sabbath, he is healed by Jesus, not by the pool. And then, lastly, he's told, pick up your pallet. And walk. Now, if you have, I think, maybe the New Living or the English Standard Version, 
you won't get this in the main text, it'll be a footnote. And the reason is that the oldest manuscripts that they have of the New Testament don't have this piece of information in. However, if you go to John chapter 8, or John chapter 7, verse 53, to chapter 8, verse 11, that passage is also not in the oldest manuscripts. But it rings true. And it is um, information that even people who say, well, John might not have written it, they do believe it's inspired of the Holy Spirit. So that's just to say that this is significant, even if you think, why, why, why is an angel stirring up the waters? It's significant to John's theology. Because if you look at it, Bethesda, there are different views of what it means, but I think the most likely um, is this word, Beit Chesed, which means house of loyal love. Sometimes um, people call it mercy, but the more I read it in the Old Testament, it, co it contains concepts of loyalty. It contains the concept, um, concept of God's faithfulness to Israel because of his covenant to them. Now, you, other people could have chesed as well to other people, but God's chesed is because of his covenant with the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So, I think the English Standard Version, this is my opinion, I think it translates it the best. It calls it steadfast love. But it translates that word as steadfast love. Because God is faithful to his people. You have standing water. And standing water in Scripture, you, flowing water, Jesus says, signifies the Holy Spirit. From out of his belly will flow rivers of living water, and by this he spoke of the Spirit which he would give to them. But standing water often becomes a picture of God's Word. So if you turn to Ephesians chapter 5, and verse 25. I'm not picking on husbands, but um, it's just because it illustrates this doctrine. It says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So you have this idea of cleansing water coming, uh, being related to the Word of God. And this is not just in that verse, but you also see the, the washing of the hands and feet by the priests in the tabernacle also carries that kind of meaning because of John 13. Jesus washed his disciples' feet, and he told them to do likewise with each other. And then in the same discourse or the same event, two chapters later, in chapter 15, verse 3, Jesus explains the significance of what he did, what it means that he washed the feet. He says, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. So standing water, often you can see, it can be a picture of the word of God, God's word that cleanses. So you have this that represents the word. It's Five porticos, they've actually found the pool. Um, there's actually two pools there. One that's surrounded by four porticos, and then there's a fifth one that divides the two pools on the north of Jerusalem. Um, and I think it's in what's called St. Anne's today, I think, if I remember correctly. But there's five porticos, and that's significant when you connect that number to the Word of God. You have that come up in a couple of places in Scripture. Firstly, there's five divisions of the book of Psalms. So you've got um, the five books of the Psalms. And, and Jewish scholars, some of them believe that that is divided into five to make it mirror the law, the law of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So you've got this concept of five that potentially speaks about the law. And when you see it in light of John's theology, 
that Jesus is greater than the law of Moses and that the law is given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus, it's not a stretch to actually say, well, you can actually see an illustration of this in this miracle. An angel stirred the waters. Well, how would that can connect to the concept of the law of Moses? Well, Acts 7. Acts 7 and verse, verse 53. Stephen is preaching to the Jewish leaders who are about to stone him to death. And he points the fingers at them and calls them stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart. It wasn't really a seeker-friendly message. It was a hard-hitting message that exposed their hearts. And he calls them murderers. And he says in verse 53, You who received the law as ordained by angels and did not keep it. Again in Hebrews chapter 1, there's another reference to this. I think it's chapter 1 or chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. And again, Hebrews is one of these books that is about showing the supremacy of what the, these Jewish believers had in Jesus over what they had in the Jewish community. It wasn't wrong for them to be part of the Jewish community. It wasn't wrong for them to go to the temple. It wasn't wrong for them to do things that every other Jew did. But what they had in Judaism and in the Jewish community was inferior. And what they had in Christ was superior and eternal, and they were being tempted to ditch Christ to stay in the Jewish community. How do we know he's telling them, like, don't stay in the Jewish community, come out? How do we know he's not saying to them, don't go back to the Jewish community? Some people teach that. They say the Hebrews is telling Jewish people, don't go back to the Jewish lifestyle and the Judaism and the Jewish community. And the answer to that quickly is in Hebrews um, chapter 13. verse 10 to verse 14, he says, We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So, let us go out to him, outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. They were already in Judaism, they were already part of the Jewish community, but, but the writer of Hebrews is telling them, don't, don't, um, don't let go of your confession, hold fast your confession. The temptation was to deny Christ and turn their back on Christ because when a persecution is coming and it's going to cost you your acceptance with your family and your community, it's very easy to think, maybe I'll just deny Christ and keep an easier life instead of being rejected and kicked out. And he's saying to them, let's go out. Jesus was outside the camp. Let's go out and suffer his reproach with him. That bears up also with the book of Acts. Jewish believers still lived Jewish lifestyles, part of Jewish communities. So the writer of Hebrews says this in chapter 2, verse 1. For this reason, because Jesus is greater than the angels, for this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? They believed the law was given through the mediation of angels. That's what Jewish people believed. Angels. First one get in gets healed. 
but we don't read of anybody going in and getting healed because that's not the main point. The main point is this person who's been helpless for 38 years, who by his own doing and his own strength is not able to get in. The Lord actually says to him in verse 6, been a long time in that condition, and he said to him, do you wish to get well? And it's really interesting the answer he gives. He doesn't say, yeah, I would love to. He says, sir, I have no man to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I'm coming, another steps down before me. He's just like, this might be me, but I get the impression this is a man who's given up. There's no hope for me. Like, no one's there to help me. Because why doesn't he just say, yeah, I would love to. If we turn to Romans. Romans chapter 5. Verse 6. Romans 5 verse 6. For while we were still helpless... At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. You can read the verses around that, but I think it stands by itself. While we were still helpless. That word helpless means weak, completely weak and sick. If you turn to John 17, sorry, Jeremiah 17. And verse 9, and um, Jeremiah's basically telling Israel, like, put your trust in God, stop putting your trust in man. And you can't even put your trust in yourself. Why? Because of verse 9. It says, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? The word sick there is in Hebrew the word anush, which means mortally sick. It means, some translations might put it this way, it's incurably sick, meaning there's no medicine for the human heart to remedy it. It is going to die. It is beyond cure. And that's why salvation is such a miracle, because the Lord doesn't just heal a heart. He gives us a new heart, a new nature, a new spirit. And so... This man is helpless, incurable. And that's what we are. You know, by our, there's no way we can do anything good enough for God that is good enough to save us. The scripture says all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. And that filthy garment is a garment soaked in blood because of a certain time of the month. That's what our good works are before the Lord. And then you can't look and say, well, you know, that's bad, but I've got all this good. Because if you're going to dish up a plate of food to somebody and you put a little bit of that bad on with a lot of good on the plate, that person's not going to eat that food. It is a stench. That little bit of bad stenches out the whole thing. And I, I used to work in a home with people with, um, they had to be cared for. Um, they had either Down syndrome or autism or some kind of, and there was a, a sanitation bin, and when you opened that, you wanted to, like, you felt like heaving. That's what our good works are like before God. Why? Because we're the worst that could ever be? No, because God is the best that he can ever be. And before him, all sin is a stench in his nostrils. Because if it wasn't, he wouldn't be perfect. And so his standard is perfection. That's why Jesus had to come and die for us, because there was nothing in us that was redeemable. When it says, for God so loved the world, that does not mean the world was so lovable that God gave. It means that God himself took the initiative, and his love was his action of saving mankind by sending his son. Not a cozy little feeling like, oh, they just make me feel so happy. We didn't make God feel happy. We didn't warm his cockles. He was motivated by that which was in himself. And that's good for us. Because if you ever struggle with self-doubt or self-esteem, 
maybe part of the problem could be, maybe, that you're trying to find it in yourself. And as long as you try and find it in yourself, you've got not much to be esteemed about. But when you look to God, and you see that He has put an eternal value of great price on you, not because of anything in you, but He's given it freely as a gift because of Him, and you look at His perfection and His goodness, you don't have to struggle with low self-esteem ever again. Because God says, I have made you worthy. I have placed this value on your head. So we have to find our value in Him. But in ourselves, we're just like this guy by the pool, completely helpless. And because he's been in that condition for 38 years, not just helpless, but hopeless. But the Lord is the savior of the hopeless. The Lord gives hope to the hopeless, and he gives salvation not to those who are good. He says, I've not come for the righteous. I've come to call sinners to repentance. And so... The Lord says to him, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. What does the Lord say to us when we follow him? Pick up your cross and follow me. That bed, or the pallet, was um, the Greek word krabaton, which is the bed of poor people like a match, straw mattress that you'd roll up. So he wasn't a wealthy guy, this guy. I mean, he's been paralyzed, so he's, um, or he's been lame, so he can't go anywhere. He's not been able to work. He's poor. And the Lord tells him to, the thing that he was lying on, the thing he's to pick up and to walk with. And he's accused by the other people of working. The Jewish leaders see him doing this on the Sabbath, and they see it as work. Why? Because they argued, if you take something from one domain to another domain, that's work. They did, however, make allowances for somebody who was in his condition. If you were carrying somebody on the pallet, it's not work, it's an act of compassion. So you get this, He's on this bed, and if someone carries him, that's okay. That's cool. That's not work. But if he gets up after being in that condition, picks up his own pallet and walks, that's work. You're breaking the law. And not only do they accuse him of breaking the Sabbath, but look what it says here. In verse 16, this reason the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Doing what? He wasn't carrying a mat. He was healing people, acts of compassion, to give him rest. And that's the thing. I mean, this guy's been in this condition for 38 years, tried his level best to get in that pool by himself with no success in a hopeless condition and given up. What's work? Carrying a pallet on a day? Or trying for 30 odd years to get into a pool to no avail? That wasn't work for him. That was rest. And it depends where we come from. Because if you know your hopeless condition, picking up your cross is not work. It's freedom. But if we're self-righteous and we say, well, I'll tick all these boxes and I do all these things for God, this becomes a work. It depends what perspective we come from. You see, let's turn to Matthew. Matthew chapter 3. And this will come up with these four witnesses that I just want to touch on quickly. Matthew 3. John is preaching the gospel of the kingdom. People are coming to be baptized and they're confessing their sins. They know what they've done. 
And they know that they need to be cleaned because the kingdom's coming and only the righteous will go into it. You know, there's a very good argument. There's a guy called Mark Adam Elliott. But it's quite a thick book, but it's a really good book. And it's called The Survivors of Israel. And in this book, he argues that Jews in Jesus' day were not waiting for the Messiah to save the whole nation. Not a national, completely nationalistic salvation. He argues that Jews were actually waiting for Jesus to save a righteous remnant within Israel. That part of the nation would perish and part of the nation would be saved and, and by the Messiah. So there is a political salvation, but it's not completely nationalistic. So a righteous remnant, these people knew it's not just enough to be Jewish. We've got to be cleaned up because the kingdom is coming. And verse verse 7, but when many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, when John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, meaning that they also wanted to be baptized. And that's kind of amazing. In the Hebrew New Testament that I've got, it actually says the Zadokites, the Pharisees and the Zadokites. And Zadok was that priest that God chose in the Old Testament who was righteous um, to be high priest. The word Zadok actually means righteous. So they they saw themselves as the righteous ones. They were coming to be baptized, but what does John say? He said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Another non-seeker-friendly message. Not a nice message trying to appeal to people. Please, God loves you. He wants you to come in. It's, you are snakes, and you who told you to flee? And why does John do this? Because John is the voice that exposes the darkness of our sinful hearts, and he shows us that we have failed. He is the epitome of what the law was about. The law was to convict of sin and to bring people to their need of reliance on God, to turn away from their idols and rely on God alone and to be saved by Him. Um, But these people were not coming like that because look what he says in verse 8. Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God's able to raise up children to Abraham. He was exposing that they thought they were fine because they're Jewish and they're descended from Abraham. In other words, baptism was just another thing to add to their spiritual CV of why they're righteous before God. Whereas the baptism is the opposite. It's coming to God saying, God, I don't deserve. I don't deserve anything good from you. I beg for you to cleanse me. That's what, even in the New Testament, even post John the Baptist, in the body of Christ, Peter says, baptism saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good, clean conscience. That's what baptism's about. If I come thinking, well, if I do this and I do this and I get baptized and I go to church, then I'll go to heaven, it's not good enough. It's still flawed. It's on the basis of grace that we are saved, not on the basis of what we do. And he exposes the darkness. And so for a while they were happy to be followers of John (laughs) until he exposed the darkness in them and they got offended, and they went away, which is a theme that's there in John as well, with Jesus on preaching. There's people getting offended and going away when he fed the 5,000. So let's lastly just look at the fact that God not only gives this sign, but he, there are four witnesses that God gives to validate the Lord's, our Lord Jesus' claim. And I'll just go through these quite quickly. Firstly, from verses 33 of John 5, verse 33 to verse 35, we have the witness of John, John the Baptist. And verse 35, it says, He was the lamp that was burning and shining 
and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the thing with light is, it shows up stuff. And according to John 3, verses 19 to 21, if we love evil, we won't want to stay in the light. Hence, you were willing to rejoice for a while. I, I always think of, um, you know, sometimes when you, pre- when you hear someone preaching and they're touching on this sin and this thing, and you're thinking about all these people in your mind who commit those sins, and you're thinking, amen, amen, yes, they need to hear this. And suddenly the preacher touches something in your life. And suddenly it's not amen anymore. It's like, oh no. So, but that's the light. It exposes everything. And they were willing to rejoice until he called them a bunch of snakes and started to show what was in their own heart. And then there was the offense. Then in verse 36, um, it talks about the witness of the works. The sign was a witness. The Lord doing this sign shows that it's not just him, but he's doing this. He actually says it before, I do nothing from myself. I only do what I see my father doing. When the Lord did it, he didn't do it on the basis of him being God, even though he could. Jesus could command stones to turn into bread. He could command legions of angels. When he was on the earth, he didn't stop being God. Jesus was fully God and fully man. But whatever the Lord did, he did in submission to his Father and and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And that is why we can walk in his footsteps. If he did it purely on the basis of him being God, there's no way we could follow that because we are not God. But if Jesus did what he did by the power of the Spirit, then whatever God calls us to do, it might not be to pray for someone's healing, it might be something very ordinary, but whatever he calls us to do, he will empower us. Even with Jeremiah, when God said, call Jeremiah to that very difficult ministry that I don't think anyone should ever cover, because he suffered so much because of that ministry of being a prophetic voice to Israel, put in a pit where he was so weak that they had to put um, cushioning on the ropes so that it didn't damage his body when they pulled him out of the pit. And it was like, I think it was a Kushite. It was, um, it was an Ethiopian who pulled him out, like the non-Jewish person who showed compassion to him, not even his fellow Jews. And, um, you know, but God said to him, I am with you, both to save you and deliver you. God gave that assurance that you can accomplish what I called you to do because my presence is with you. And so the, the Lord Jesus set us, sets us this example. These works are not just the Lord doing something, but it's the Father testifying about the Son through the works. But the works themselves, as we see, it's not just a display of power. God's not into doing magic shows and saying, look at my power. He's actually communicating something. Everything, when you see an artist do a piece of artwork, it tells you something about the artist. My artwork is very scruffy. It tells you something about the person doing the artwork. Your art is an expression of yourself. When the Lord acts, he's expressing himself. He's not just showing he is powerful. And so we see the significance of the sign. It's testifying to Jesus. And then in verse 37 and 38, the Father He sent me, he's testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. I think of two occasions where the Father revealed himself, or revealed the Son. The one, the voice at the baptism. This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. Second, Matthew chapter 16, I think verse 16, where Jesus had asked, the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Peter says, Bless, the Lord says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father is in heaven. The Father's voice is a voice that people hear if they have the ears to hear it. And it's very, very connected to how they regard his word. You see, before Jesus came, the Father sent John. And if they would not accept John's testimony, 
neither would they accept Jesus's. And therefore, if they don't accept John's testimony, they will not hear the voice of the Father. Um, until they see the, the light and accept the light, they will never see the remedy to their condition. And then lastly, verse 39 to verse 46, you have the testimony of Scripture. The Scripture itself testifies to Jesus. And in verse 39 and 40, the Lord says, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. And then verse 46, it says, if you believed Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And you kind of wonder because when you know who Jesus is speaking about, these are people who prided themselves in their exposition of Scripture. You go to theological seminaries in the, across this world, especially in the West, full of agnostic scholars. Scholars who say there's something of God in this book, but it's not 100% God's Word. It contains God's Word in it. You can... and. The facts, some of the facts they uncover and some of the things they say, even though they're unbelievers, still helpful when it comes to geography and history and word meanings, can be helpful, but you can spend your whole life studying a book you don't believe in, and what does it profit? It profits nothing. It's only by trusting in Jesus and, and, and responding to him and yielding to him and walking with him that that has any significance. All those works will be burned up and they will have nothing to show for it unless they also repent. And so we should never disparage scholarship. And I mean, our Bible translations are the work of scholars. The, the, the English Bible didn't just appear out of thin air. You had to have a Greek and Hebrew scholar. You had to have William Tyndale who would do the hard work of, of studying it and then, and then other scholars after him. But... It means nothing without Christ. And then the Lord's saying to him, you, you relish in these scriptures and you mull over them and you, you, you talk about them and you break it down so much and you glory in them, but what for? Because they're speaking about me and I'm the one that can give life. Except, except um, the Lord, we go to the Lord, this will never impart life. Not because this is a dead book without the Holy Spirit. This is a living book. The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any Jewish sword. I'm dead. The problem is not with the Bible being a dead book. The problem is with me. I'm dead. And I need to be alive to actually resonate with the life that's in here. And so, four, four, four witnesses to the Lord. The ultimate one from Moses is Deuteronomy 18 verse 15. You can read it at home. But God says he would raise up another prophet like Moses from among his brethren. And Israel must listen to him. And if they don't, God will require it from their hand. Jesus is the prophet like Moses. The ultimate one. And therefore, you need to, Israel, you need to listen to this Messiah because if you reject him, God will require that from your hand. And so you've got four witnesses to Jesus. Last thing. Compare that with Jesus' trial. Matthew, is it Matthew or what have I written? Let's go Mark, Mark 14. And this is a good way to, to conclude this because when the Lord bothers to give a sign, when the Lord bothers to speak to you in your life, I was reading it last week about Solomon. Solomon went astray from the Lord, but when I was reading the text, it made this point that God had appeared to him twice. And, and, and so his departure from the ways of the Lord was even more grievous. If God takes the time to speak to you, if God takes the time to actually manifest in some special way that you know it's directly Him speaking to you, when He 
bothers to give a sign like this. It's not a flippant light thing. It requires response. Because God's not into magic shows to woo and wah. He's calling people. And so Israel receiving these signs, which were clear signs, the death and resurrection, and that was the ultimate sign. And you don't respond. What condemnation. Now compare this to what they did with the Lord. Mark 14. And verse 56. Well, let's go from verse 55. The, the trial of the Lord. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death. And they were not finding any. For many were giving false testimony against him, but their testimony was not consistent. Some stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying, We heard him saying, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. But not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. The law says, except on the basis of the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact cannot be established. So it actually says it the other way. Um, on the basis of two or three witnesses, every fact will be established. If you're going to sentence someone to death because they've broken the law, you better have two or three independent, verifiable witnesses before you sentence someone to death. Because it was a serious thing. Because you could slay innocent blood, and God would then require it against you. And so it says, the high priest stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus, saying, do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest questioning him and saying to him, he was questioning him and saying to him, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven, tearing his clothes, which is an act of deep grief. But from what I understand, the high priest wasn't even supposed to do that. The high priest said, what further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. But that claim that Jesus gave was backed up by witnesses. Four witnesses. And they could not even find two consistent witnesses to condemn the Lord. But their minds were made up even before they started. When someone's scrambling to find evidence to back up their position and struggling, and eventually they alight on a truth out of context, or they're not even seeing the truth, but they, they use it, they, they're saying this is blasphemy when it's not blasphemy, it really shows that you're not dealing with someone who desires truth. They've made up their mind. They don't, just don't want Jesus in their lives. So the, the challenge to us, to me and to each one of us is, you know, here's the sign. This is the, what the Lord is saying to everybody. It's by faith, not by works. It's by the Lord's grace that he gives us rest. And Jesus says to us, come unto me, all ye that are weary and heavy laden, and take my yoke upon you, and learn of me, because I'm humble of heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. That if my following of Jesus is just accumulating all these brownie points to think that I'm good enough to go to heaven, we all know this, but sometimes in our actions and some of the things we do, we forget that truth, that everything we do for the Lord has to be on the basis and in response to what he has done for us, not to think we're meriting something amazing with the Lord. How do we respond to that? And so if the Lord, it says in Scripture, if you hear the Spirit's voice, if you don't know Jesus, really you, you've not come to trust in him personally for your salvation, um, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. But the Lord is calling, and he requires a response. What will your response be? For those of us who do know the Lord, if the Lord is showing us anything, what is our response to him? What a great God we have, who doesn't just speak and speak and speak, but he speaks and requires response. And why is that so wonderful? 
Because that's relationship. If you reciprocate, you respond to him, and he speaks to you, you have a relationship with the living God. And so therefore, we don't have a list of do's and don'ts. We have some do's and don'ts, but we have a living God who takes the time and comes to us and communes with us and wants fellowship and intimate fellowship with us. Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you so much um, that, Lord, you've not just given us your word and said run off and do everything and tick all the boxes, but, Lord, you step in by your Holy Spirit and you lay things on our hearts and you expose certain areas that we're blind to. And, Lord, we just recognize that we're like that man. Even though we're saved and we're born again, Lord, Apart from you, we can do nothing. We are helpless and hopeless. There's nothing in us that we can anchor anything on to give us a sense of security. Lord, it's only you. And I thank you, Lord, that when we err, you correct. And when we go into wrong thinking, Lord, you send believers or you give us a scripture or something, Lord, that just to correct our understanding. Lord, please don't leave us alone. Please don't stop um, speaking. But Lord, um, we recognize today that the more you speak, the more accountable we become. So Lord, may you find us yielding and obedient in Jesus' name. Amen.